All right. Here we go. You guys ready? All right. So I read this article called The Search for God Cannot Wait about George Harrison that I want to share with you guys. George Harrison was the lead guitarist for the Beatles. He embraced Indian culture and helped broaden the scope of popular music through his incorporation of Indian instrumentation and Hindu-aligned spirituality in the Beatles' work. CBS's Mark Phillips reported on the death and life of George Harrison on November 29, 2001. The former Beatle died in Los Angeles from cancer. His family by his side, he was 58 years old. Harrison's life and music reached for the same notes, inner strength and inner peace, and struck a chord with millions. Of all the Beatles, George Harrison hadn't been the brash one or the cute one or the funny one. He'd been the thoughtful one, seeking not fame, but answers. He said, the purpose of life is to find out who I am, why I'm here and where I'm going. That's what we need answering. As he was dying, his final message to the world was everything else can wait, but the search for God cannot wait and love one another. Now, I don't personally know if George was a Christian, if he ever accepted Jesus Christ as his savior, but one thing he was absolutely right about was that the search for God cannot wait. The apostle Paul has helped us to do just that through his writings in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, which are called epistles. Epistles are essentially letters or a series of letters in an elegant or formal style. These include Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon all of which are rich with godly information, including some of the most important Christian doctrines. And one of the things that I would like to do is spend a little bit of time going through one of those epistles over the next several weeks. Now, I've personally never preached a series before, and this may or may not actually be a series. Um, and we might find a pastor next week. I don't know. But I think that as our church goes through the process of selecting a new full-time senior pastor, as we move from one season to the next, that we spend some time looking at one of the most fundamental questions any person has ever had, and that is, what am I doing here? And to do that, we're going to be looking at Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, written about AD 60, a letter that, as one source states, summarizes the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone and describes the nature and role of the church in God's eternal plan. This epistle was written to believers in the church at Ephesus and likely circulated to those throughout Western Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Ephesians is one of the four letters that Paul wrote while in prison. The other three are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. One of the things that Paul wanted to achieve with this letter was to encourage believers to think of themselves as people in Christ, as new people, not as the people that they were before receiving God's grace. Believers are at peace with God and should do their best to be at peace with others, especially other believers. 
I want to encourage each of you here today to remember that regardless of the changes that we face in life, regardless of the, the people coming and going in our lives, regardless of past mistakes or past transgressions, that we, the believers of Shadow Mountain Church, are a people in Christ. Each one of us are not who we used to be. We're made new in Jesus Christ by the will of God. We are at peace with God. Today we'll start this journey off by looking at the first two verses in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Paul starts this letter to the Ephesians with a salutation which is essentially a, a gesture or utterance made as a greeting. Paul starts this salutation by identifying himself as Paul, the one who wrote this letter. And then he identifies his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he states whose authority he has that apostolic position by the will of God. And then he addresses who the letter is to, which are the saints and then he identifies where they are located physically, who are in Ephesus. And he identifies where they are in the spiritual sense. He says, and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then last, he offers them a blessing, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to look at the significance of this greeting, starting with Paul's introduction of himself. I mean, who was Paul exactly? Was he some amazing person who was raised in the Christian church? Someone who went to all the Sunday school events, never missed church? Maybe he spent a week serving children in the local vocation, or vacation Bible school. But the reality is that's not even close. In fact, Paul's life illustrates what it means to be redeemed. Paul was originally called Saul of Tarsus, born around A.D. 1-ish in modern-day Turkey. Philippians 3, 5, and 6 describes Saul. It says he was circumcised the eighth day. It says he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was well educated according to Acts 22, 3. He says of himself, I am indeed a Jew, Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, a Jewish rabbi, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. Saul was so zealous for the law, in fact, he was such a devout Pharisee that he actually began to persecute Christians. Notice Acts 3, as for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This man, this religious leader, this man of God was so blinded by the law that he actually started to kill or imprison people who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. He was a murderer of Christians. But just like all non-believers, there comes a point in every person's life when they have to make a decision about who God actually is. And this happened to Saul of Tarsus when he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. 
He was actually headed there to round up more Christians for prison when he had his encounter with Jesus Christ. Notice Acts 9, 1 through 22. Then Paul, excuse me, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, of the way is how Christians were known, they weren't Mandalorians, uh, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Saul was blinded by Jesus. Later, while in Damascus, he would encounter a man named Ananias, whom God had informed that this man's soul was chosen to carry his message to the Gentiles. Ananias laid his hands on Saul and prayed for him. Acts 9, 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul went from killing Christians in the name of the law to proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ throughout the remainder of his life. He was chosen by God for this special task of being an apostle. And just to be clear that Saul of Tarsus and the apostle Paul are the same person, Look at Acts 13, 9. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. There's a couple of things that I want to point out here. First, God can use anyone he chooses to do anything he chooses. God can use anyone he chooses to do anything he chooses. Even take a cold-blooded murderer and redeem him. Save him. And use him to glorify himself. We all have a sinful story. We were all once rebellious towards God. Hostile towards God. And yet, just like Saul of Tarsus, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we have received God's grace and have been forgiven for our sinfulness. Second, when a person becomes a Christian, just like Paul and realizes that there's more to the story than just selfish ambition. We realize that God is actually in control, and through his own sacrifice, sinners have been saved. And through that salvation, through God's grace and mercy, we are humbled, knowing that we have wronged God in the past, just as Paul did, and yet he forgives us as he did for Paul. We should be motivated to serve God, just like Paul Notice Acts 20, 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears 
and trials, which happened to me, that is Paul, by the plotting of the Jews. When a person becomes a Christian and commits their life to God, they can and will accomplish so much for the glory of God. And we may never actually know the full extent of how God uses us, even as he used Paul in prison. Notice Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Paul writes, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. God will choose and use people so that he does not lose people. That's what he did with Paul. And Paul knew it and he lived it. Paul knew that if it were not for Jesus Christ, he would not have been saved. And he lived his life according to that principle. And he encouraged others to do the same, as we're going to see when we go through this epistle further. Charles Spurgeon said, I wish we were ready for all danger, all slander, all contumely. I don't know if I even said that right, which means insulting language. It's like one of those like high-end words. All poverty or anything that it might cost us to preach Christ where he is not known. The Apostle Paul was ready to go anywhere with the gospel, but he was not ready to preach another gospel. No one could make him ready for that. Paul was an amazing man of God who walked the walk and talked the talk. But let's move on from the first word, Paul, and move on to the next couple of words. Notice Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He introduced himself and now he's given us his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? Is this something that we can achieve, something that we can become? Are there modern day apostles? You hear some churches who talk about their leaders as being apostles. So what are they exactly? What made Paul an apostle? Why does he have this position and this title? Well, first, the Greek word, for apostle is apostolos, which comes from the verb apostilian, which means to send away or to send forth. It started with Jesus Christ being sent by God to save the world. Notice Hebrews 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So the general concept is that an apostle is someone that is sent by God to speak God's word, to fulfill God's will, to reveal God, in Jesus' case, to give eternal life. Notice John 17, 2 and 3. As you, meaning God, have given him, meaning Jesus, authority over all flesh, that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as you, God, have given him, Jesus, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But Paul specifically says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent by God, which makes him an apostle by position. 
And then he himself, Jesus Christ, being God in the flesh, sent specific people to do special works. Those special people would then be apostles by position. Notice John 17, 18. As you, God, sent me, Jesus, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So essentially, an apostle is an authoritative extension of the master. The apostles had been given special authority on behalf of Jesus. Notice Matthew 1040. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Most Christians are familiar with Jesus' 12 apostles. These were people that were selected by Jesus Christ himself to be sent out on a special mission. On his behalf and with his authority which is why the apostles were able to perform unusual gifts. There's no evidence that apostleship has moved beyond being an eyewitness of Jesus Christ or being the special ones he selected himself. And therefore, it does not seem possible to be a modern-day apostle, technically. There are some arguments for those that are sent by the church to be an apostle, but at the very least, we might say the 12 apostles were capital A apostles and others might be little a apostles. But really, the term is not apostle. Beyond the 12, it would be a different position that was given, such as pastor or teacher. You might just say disciple, etc. Apostleship really is reserved for the hand picked few. And if you disagree with that statement, that's okay. I'm just making the point that Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ was chosen by Jesus Christ himself in person. Remember, Jesus spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he was sent out into the world as an extension of his authority to share the gospel message with the Gentiles. And so now we, we understand that Paul was a, a big time sinner who was redeemed by God through Jesus Christ chosen by Jesus Christ personally to be an apostle and sent out on a special mission to reach the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people and share the good news about Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found only in him. Paul was not some perfect person. He was a sinner, as all people are. He made mistakes. He had a past. And he had a reputation for being a Christian killer. But God demonstrated his power in redeeming this man and using this man for good, just like he can and will do with all sinners who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It was God's will that put Paul in this position of being an apostle. It was God's will he was redeemed and that he be sent out on this special mission to reach the lost. Some people might ask if Paul was the right person for the job. Did God choose this murdering crazy man by mistake? Why not somebody better or less aggressive or less murdery? Notice Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Well, this implies that God's will for you technically 
is none of my business. He does what he pleases. And there's a few things I want to point out about God's will that people should understand. And first, God's will is always good, always acceptable, and always perfect. Notice Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We may not always understand the good that is associated with God's will, but it is important that we have faith and that it is good. Second, while God's will is always good, acceptable, and perfect, it can lead to suffering. Notice James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God will test our faith. And this doesn't always seem good, but it is. Remember, Paul wrote this epistle while he was in prison. It may not have seemed good at the time, but through his faith, he fulfilled God's will in his reaching the Gentiles. Even us here today, 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ also suffered. Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet Isaiah said it pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning Jesus. And while it doesn't seem good to hurt someone, Jesus Christ fulfilled God's will by dying on the cross and saving those that would accept his sacrifice for God. One source defines the will of God as God's plan and purpose for his creation and for each individual. We may not always like what God does because in our fallen sinful state, we think we know better. But the reality is God's will for our lives is something that we should all strive to know for our own lives through prayer and discernment. Colossians 1.9, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. John MacArthur said this about God's will. You say you do not know what God's will is, but I'll tell you what it is. Above all, it is that you know Christ and then that your neighbor hear about Christ. That is his will. So often we sit around twiddling our thumbs, dreaming about God's will in some distant future when we're not even willing to stand up on our own two feet, walk down the street, and do God's will right now. Jesus Christ fulfilled God's will on the cross. Paul fulfilled God's will in reaching the lost. And we can all fulfill God's will in our lives by sharing the gospel with those we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. So we know who Paul is. We know what Paul's position is. And we know that it was the will of God that he have this position. 
And so what does that mean for us in general? Well, it means that we should listen to what Paul has to say. Because he is an extension of the master. He is speaking with the authority of God. I know that authority is tough for some people. They dislike authority. And they dislike it when people have the power to give orders or make divisions on their behalf. And that might be because in some cases, authority has been abused. I read one story called The Arrogance of Authority that said this. A DEA officer stopped at a ranch in Texas, and he talked with an old rancher. He told the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. And the rancher said, okay, but don't go in that field over there. As he pointed out the location, the DEA officer verbally exploded, saying, Mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his rear pants pocket, the arrogant officer removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. See this badge? This badge means I'm allowed to go wherever I wish, on any land. No questions are asked or answers are given. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? The rancher nodded politely, apologized, and went about his chores. A short time later, the old rancher heard loud screams. Looking up, he saw the DEA officer running for his life, being chased by the rancher's big bull. With every step, the bull was gaining ground on the officer, and it seemed likely that he'd sure enough get gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified, and the rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Show him your badge! <laughs> It's true that authority does get abused sometimes by sinners. But God is not a sinner. God is perfect. And despite our lack of understanding, we should always respect God's authority, even when it's extended to one of his apostles. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Who are the saints in Ephesus? One source said this about saints. Saints are people who have been separated from the world and consecrated to the worship and service of God. Followers of the Lord are referred to by this phrase throughout the Bible. Although its meaning is developed more fully in the New Testament, consecration, meaning setting apart, and purity are the basic meanings of the term. Notice Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Saints, in general, are those that believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, all Christians are saints, even the ones you don't like. Paul is writing specifically to those believers that live in Ephesus, hence the name of the epistle, Ephesians. 
just a really quick side note. Do you guys all know how to make someone a saint? You have to beat the hell out of them. I thought it was funny. <laughs> Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, located at the mouth of the Castor River on the Aegon coast in the southwestern corner of modern-day Turkey. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire with an estimated population of around 250,000. So this was not a little city. This was a huge city with many different types of people. The Roman Empire would send people to various provinces to help establish their control and influence over the indigenous populations. This is important to understand because just like the United States, this area was very diverse and filled with many different types of religious beliefs. There were people who worshiped the goddess of fertility, magic and astrology, called Artemis, or Diana, as the Romans called her. According to some evidence, the citizens of Ephesus worshipped up to 50 different gods and goddesses. There were cults that viewed emperors as gods, and they built temples and statues, held games and festivals in their honor, etc. There were those who practiced magic. Some people knew the area as a place of demonic activity. You might think of Ephesus as the ancient Las Vegas. You might think of Ephesus as a progressive city, one in which Gnosticism might have been present in that people believed you could only be saved through revealed knowledge, a teaching that was later deemed heretical. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, is writing to the Christians who live in a cesspool of belief and a hodgepodge of people, again, not unlike modern-day cities in the United States. <clears throat> He's writing to those that are faithful in Jesus Christ. It's likely Paul knew a lot of them because he taught there for a couple of years. And remember from the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that Paul was writing to encourage these believers to think of themselves as new people, not as they were in their sin, but as new people in Christ. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to live in a place where all evil things are treated as good, where things seem to be upside down compared to what God says. Instead of being humble, people are prideful. Instead of being generous, people are selfish. Instead of being thankful to God, people condemn him and they push him aside. People choose to worship idols and false doctrines instead of seeking God's will. Can you imagine being inundated with false information about life and about what truth is, like the Ephesians did. Obviously, you can. Because we live in the same old, broken world. In the same old, sin-filled place as they did. And so not only did God's will for Paul have him write this letter to encourage those believers so long ago, but God has preserved Paul's writings to be passed down through time to us here today. Because just like those who were at Ephesus, those who were faithful in Jesus, we who are in this place are faithful in Jesus. And we need to be encouraged to live like we are a new creation and not like the world. I read a very cool article called Thinking with the Saints that said this. Saints are people 
who managed to love God more than life itself. They managed to love their neighbor more than themselves and thereby find true life. Saints are people who just push their way into our modern present and make the God question and the neighbor question the only interesting intellectual questions. Christians are those who've learned to think with the saints and thereby we think much more creatively than we could if we'd been left to our own devices. St. Francis, Martin Luther King, Gideon, Mary, they help us to think beyond ourselves. They help us to think despite ourselves and thereby in this act of holy remembering and saintly thinking, new options are envisioned. We are encouraged. A new world, not of our own devising, is offered to us. We get some pretty big ideas. We as Christians have been called to be more than our environment. We've been called to be more than what this world has to offer. We have been called to exist with God for eternity. And before we do, we have been given the task of sharing that information with all of the world. Notice Colossians 1.28. Him we preach, him meaning Jesus, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And then the last part of our verse today, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. MacArthur explained that grace to you and peace was a common greeting in the early church, which Paul used in all of his letters. When Paul says grace to you, he is talking about God's grace, which is something that can only come from God. The concept of grace is the gracious or merciful behavior of a more powerful person toward another. It is something that cannot be earned, and it is something that is not deserved. It is something that God himself gives us freely in and through Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says to his readers, grace to you, in essence, he's saying, I hope you have God's forgiveness because it's essential to be at peace with God. Grace to you and peace. Charles Spurgeon said, grace is the first and last moving cause of salvation and faith essential as it is, is only an important part of the machinery which grace employs. We are saved through faith, but salvation is by grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, Paul was conveying that grace and peace come from the Father and Jesus, signifying that they are one and the same. They are equals. One who can provide grace, as stated before. I think we should all learn to use this type of greeting when talking or when writing to others. Because if a believer receives this type of greeting, they're going to understand it and they're going to acknowledge God's grace. But if a non-believer receives this greeting, it may become an icebreaker to share the good news about God's grace and how they can receive it. And along with it, peace. I read an article called, Denying Our Hunger Means Missing the Blessing, which said spiritual hunger is a precondition to God's blessing. The problem is we are in denial about our condition or we are taught to be in denial. When I was growing up, the man says, my mom would occasionally take me with her when she visited friends sitting on the couch next to her with my hands folded in my lap, listening to the conversation that was meaningless to me as a small boy. 
was an excruciatingly dull experience. At some point in the visit, the host would eventually break the monotony and would break the monotony and ask me if I wanted something to drink. I longed for that moment the way a prisoner longs to hear the sound of the key in the prison cell door. Unfortunately, my mother had a basic rule of etiquette. Whenever we went visiting, if the host offers you anything to eat or drink, she told me, you say no thank you. If the host offers again, you accept. What kind of rule is that? Maybe she didn't want me to appear greedy. Perhaps it had something to do with growing up in the Great Depression. Of course, the problem with this little game was that nobody seemed to have informed the host or hostess of the rules. They would say, would you like a cookie or would you like a glass of lemonade? I would say, no, thank you. They would take me at my word and put the cookies away. <laughs> but the fundamental problem with this little ploy was that it was essentially a lie. This is the problem we face when it comes to spiritual hunger. Jesus says the blessing of righteousness comes only to those who hunger and thirst for it. But our natural state is one of denial. I think that it's an interesting point that this article makes, that our natural state is one of denial. Therefore, it might be helpful to offer the greeting at the beginning of your conversation with folks and at the end, just in case they are deniers or waiting for you to ask a second time. Notice at the end of this epistle in chapter 6, verse 23 and 24, Paul writes, Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you, all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And that's the greeting that I want to leave with you today. Christopher Gray, a disciple of Jesus Christ by the grace of God, to the saints who are in Gardnerville and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for all that you have given us. You are an amazing God. We don't deserve anything that we have received, but yet you just continue to give to us eternal life. We can't even begin to express our gratitude. But even on top of that, you've given us the opportunity to share that information with those around us, with those who have never heard of Jesus or who have denied Jesus. You've given us the task of sharing the good news with them. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, that you might motivate us to do that. Give us the courage to talk to our neighbors, to talk to our coworkers. Help us, Father, to be all that we can be and to fill your, fulfill your will, just as Paul did. We thank you for this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>